Hello, friends. It's Hit Factory. Aaron here. Carly here. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Hi. What? Welcome. Oh. Hello. Hi. Carly's here, folks. Welcome back <laughs> womp, to the program. Womp. <laughs> no, not one. People fucking miss you, man. Mm. <laughs> like, I don't... I don't okay. know how to say this any uh, any more delicately than that, but you think that you are somehow a hindrance or like, I don't know, some sort of pock <laughs> on the show. <laughs> a, a single pock. And like you're the you're of the two of us, like you're the one who's got like groupies who are like in like you're the special sauce of the program. I think it's just because I'm hot. Like, I don't think it's because I have, I I have been. Contribute. Uh, I've been holding on for dear life in your absence. <laughs> not that's not to diminish our guests. Our guests no. have been the only thing basically propping me up. Yes. I'm sort of just a, a weird straw man, straw person here. I, I often think that. I know you do. <laughs> I show up. I provide a little bit of insight. I tee up some ideas. Uh, the guest goes, but without your input, the show dynamic is it's a little off i gotta say and frankly i have to apologize to all of our guests who have been getting like only half the hit factory experience (laughs) hanging out with me when they were promised both of us i mean you know shit happens shit happens i'm not i'm not going to be critical of you there's good reason for it yeah i've been like not sleeping (laughs) that's really (laughs) but you've also been working on some things elsewhere that We'll hopefully get an opportunity to talk about in a little bit more detail soon enough. Maybe. Who knows? But it's it's been productive and restorative both, I hope. My point is simply that I'm glad to have you back. You're the Claudette to my Dutch, you know? <laughs> and without you, I'm just a cat strangling psychopath. I, I need yeah. you to keep me in check. I want to say something so mean right now, <laughs> but it would get me canceled, so I won't. Please don't. I'm not going All to. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, you know what I'm gonna say I, too. I, I know you probably said it to me here already <laughs> I, once or twice. I have. Uh, but the reason we are gathered here today, <clears throat> uh, we're not getting married, <laughs> <laughs> dearly beloved, uh, you lovely listener at home. It is the third birthday. What? What? Of this podcast? Three. Three years. Is that a toddler? Like it's an it's an elder toddler. <laughs> Is what it is. An elder toddler. What's a three? I don't know. I'm going to call it a toddler. A toddler. toddler's fine. Yeah. Yeah, a toddler's fine. Can you tell we want kids? (laughs) What's a three? What's a three? What the fuck are you? What the fuck is your deal? deal? Uh, No, but we are gathered here today because we are three years old now. We began this program in July of 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. Days were dark. These were dark. were so dark, like uh, literally and figuratively. Yes. And, you know, we share a birthday with uh, a character portrayed by one of Hit Factory's favorite people, Tom Cruise. He's also like part of our origin story. Well, that's my point. He's <laughs> part of the origin story of the podcast. And we, we both just happened to be born on the 4th of July. I think it's very fitting. Yep. And it wasn't on purpose. I think it was actually something that really just came about because... You had a long weekend from work and (laughs) I had officially reached like three days unemployed and was like ready to drink 
turpentine at that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. No, it was cosmic. It was. You're right. It was none of the things you said. <laughs> right. We planned it all along. And no, no, no. That's not what cosmic means. Look, let me handle this part. Right. Well, the, uni- the universe saw <laughs> I'm fit. I'm the water sign. All right. Here. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. Yeah. The universe saw fit to birth this podcast on the day that a cruise character was born. And so here we are. And our first episode was about a seminal cruise movie. Yes, that's true. 1993's The Firm. The Firm. Yeah. By any means, we started the show three years ago. We don't have a movie for today to talk about. So instead, we just decided to talk about many movies. Uh, And I gave you a homework assignment, Carly. I said, let's go ahead and each pick our top five films that we have discussed on the show. Now, I'm going to be clear here for the sake of our audience and for all of our friends who have come on the show. I made the criteria that it was simply a film that we had come to courtesy of the show and had and had covered. Nothing to do with the episode itself. That would be an insurmountable task. There are too many great episodes, too many great conversations, too many amazing people we have spent time with on this program for us to narrow it down like that. I would short circuit. I already hate having to narrow shit down and me who doesn't have that same issue (laughs) uh briefly considered it just ran it through my mind palace and came up on the other end also ready to short circuit so uh i said top five films that we've covered and then i believe that each of us when we went our separate ways to come up with our lists uh instituted our own self-imposed criteria to make the choices easier to come by i needed to because otherwise it would have been pardon my corporate speak boiling the ocean or whatever (laughs) like whatever they say yeah so yeah i had to give myself like guardrails absolutely and i did the same thing uh i i'll say neither of us knows the other person's list as of right now so all of these are going to be a surprise to each other as we go through them. Yeah. Nor do we know the criteria we, we use. We do not know the criteria. So I think maybe we're, we really, really keep things exciting here <laughs> in this household. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we put strictures on the conversations we had today. Most of it was just about like protein or, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, but macros, right. You got to watch them. The bug bars <laughs> that we're grinding up and, eating what it's a joke it's all right it's a never mind is it from a movie Uh, yes and just the general idea of like a dystopia where we eat like protein bug bars oh yeah rather than soiling green we'll just eat bugs we already i think we already do that i've eaten crickets before not bad Hmm. delicacy in mexico they sell them bagged and seasoned with various seasonings here no i meant like i feel like the bars we have in our house are like buggy they're a little buggy. They're sandy. That's for sure. Like, like there's definitely like some real dirt in them. Yeah. <laughs> when you buy them from the fucking co-op and they're like hand wrapped in paper. Look, they're good. They are. They are good. Well, they're good for you more than they are like outright They're something. Good. Anyway, uh, digressions aside, I want to know before we get into our top five list, Carly, what the parameters the the guide rails that you set for your list were well first things first i fucking love homework (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm so good at that it. That you do. <laughs> that you do. You know, so I have like seven pages of notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So my parameters, I, I gave myself the guardrail of one movies I'd never seen before. Okay. Which like cuts it way down. Cuts it way like, down. No, we've seen, we've done plenty of movies that I had never seen before. And then I was going through the list and I was like, no, like my life was a lot of these movies growing up. (laughs) I will, I'll say actually, I think that is a stricter parameter for you than it is for me. You have seen more of the films that we've talked about than I have. Yes. Um, so I did that because not only do I love homework, but I also am very good at punishing myself incredibly good i will give you that i'll give you that (laughs) you gotta self-flagellate i'm your gal (laughs) and i will do it for you to me that's true and then the other thing that i said is that it needed to be a movie i'd never seen before that i wasn't expecting to love as much as i did okay and i never go into movies being like oh this is gonna be trash like that's just not the type of person i am unless it's like a certain type of movie. Yeah. And um, you just don't see those types of movies. Yeah. That's like, why I'm going to see the new Wes Anderson movie by myself. Look, okay. <laughs> I, he's fine. He's fine. Um, so really just movies though, that like, I, I was like, okay, like, sure. I'll watch this. <laughs> Cause I have to, but I wasn't like, I know this is going to blow me away. But then I left being like, my life has forever been changed after having seen this. Mm-hmm. I like that. I have way more than five. <laughs> <laughs> I, You know what, though? I think that that's fine. But I'm going to... I've narrowed it down to five of that way more than five. I have done the same thing. So I have a short list. Uh, I'll tell you my parameters. Please. So for the purposes of the show, I decided something similar. I did not say that it has to be a film that I have never seen before. The single parameter that I did apply to my list was that I wanted to pick films that whether I had seen them before or had come to them because of the podcast, uh, I had not fully appreciated or understood until I applied the lens of the pod to it. I love that. So some of them are ones that I was familiar with already but found a new appreciation for because of the show. Some of them are ones that are from directors that I otherwise am not all that. I I won't even say not that interested in, but just ones that I found more distancing and impenetrable before and have found uh, a a profound love for because of the show and because Mm -hmm. of the episodes that we recorded. That's lovely. Thank you. I thought you were going to do like a stupid ally thing that was like, lady directors or whatever and i was like really not looking forward to it. i'm gonna i'm gonna keep it real with you uh we have not done enough women no, directed movies like on the show for fun <laughs> uh i think our parameters are sound i think that the uh obstructions that we've put on our selection sound interesting so i think we should probably just get right into it and i will I think you should start. Oh, you want me to start? Yeah. All right. I was going to ask you to start because I, you know, am am driving the ship here. But uh, fine. I will start with one. Fine. (laughs) And I did these in mostly uh, chronological order. I will also say that. That's okay. okay. Well. (laughs) I I didn't. You can do it in whatever order you want. Wait, like in chronological meaning like when we recorded? Yes, when we recorded. Oh, okay. Not like 
No, this not when the movie came is out. Is from 1990. No, I did these in the order in which we recorded them, mostly because it was convenient for me to look at our RSS feed that way, and also because I like to track the evolution of things chronologically. It's interesting to me. So I yeah. started at the beginning. Yeah, same. My first pick is the Blair Witch Project. Hurry up! I'm coming. My boots aren't laced. Oh my god, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? Oh shit. I love the episode we did on the Blair Witch Project. It was a solo endeavor. It was one that we didn't do with a guest. We didn't have many guests on the show for the first like six, eight months. Uh, I think we were too nervous for it. We weren't technologically set up to like host people very comfortably. Um, and I was just terrified of the prospect of anybody like perceiving me while I was trying to talk about something. We like needed this. to find our sea legs. We, like it wouldn't, it wouldn't have. Wouldn't have worked. Uh, it was just difficult. And you and I had like never talked that way before no, either. Like it's it's it a was different so weird. It's a different way of being on than when we're just like communicating in like a space together. Uh, and we had to learn it and get comfortable with it. I think we're much better at it now than I we once so. were. I think we are. God. I think we've come a little bit of. Uh, I think we've improved a bit. Um, but <laughs> in three years, <laughs> in three years, uh, we're getting there eventually. We'll we'll put one of these out. That's just a, a real, you know, slam dunk. But. The Blair Witch Project was one that thinking about the film made it for me something that was more than just a batshit scary, like pitch perfect and competently made horror film. Uh, We talked about a lot of like it as a film that fell into the same sort of category as those other like late 90s films about premillennial malaise. Um And this one specifically is one that not only had that like fear of futurelessness, but it was also looking back. It was also considering the foundations of America and the kind of horrors on which colonial America and everything that exists today uh, was built. It gets in your fucking bones, man. It's just... It's really good. And like there are a bunch of losers out there who are like, it's not, oh, this movie's not scary. And I'm just like, you don't have a beating heart. You're plebs. And you have never felt any real emotion in your entire life. And I feel sorry for you. The thing about that movie that makes it so special is that one, it's just an impeccable utilization of the found footage format. Uh, It still remains like the only one I think to like really adequately thoroughly utilize the format in a way that feels uh necessary and vital it kind of embraces the sort of like chaos and indiscretion of that format and have the actors really shoot on the cameras uh it transitions between the actual equipment that they use like it's clear that they weren't just shooting on like digital and pretending to be shooting on film cameras like they actually pulled the footage off of the equipment that the team like of actors was They're using. They're really thoughtful about the yeah. formats. The formats is, is brilliant. And also, yeah, I mean, just at, beyond the, the movie itself, I think that that film and that episode remains one of the high watermarks of like the first part of Hit Factory. Like maybe those first like 20, even like 30 episodes. Yeah. One of my favorites. I totally agree. I feel like with that film too, we really solidified around this idea of films 
1999 specifically really operating with this like incredibly antagonistic posture toward the establishment Mm -hmm. but in ways that were more severe than years prior but still like unable to like articulate the thing that like they were antagonistic about right really until like the matrix right where they were like we're all plugged into some shit and like everyone's a slave i i think the wachowskis just had like a particular like they had sort of tapped the vein of that malaise and been able to articulate it in a way that was like coherent and also i think just and they were just like more politically like entrenched in their ideas and the thing with the Blair Witch I think that makes it really resonant though is that the inability to articulate it actually manifests externally in the film yes and that like though it's called the Blair Witch Project the actual evil the thing that terrorizes the the three actors in the movie is unknowable unnamed given like at least three different explanations for the sort of form that it can take. Yeah. And none of it's really coherent. And I think part of that is why people sometimes criticize that movie and say like, it's not scary or like it ends abruptly. And like before it actually like gets into like what the thing is. And I'm like, no, that's, that's a feature, not a bug of that film. Yeah. The only other thing I'll say about that movie is like, it's one of the few films of that era that I feel like, really nailed the whole like digital marketing like ecosystem yeah before that was like even a thing well it was like like, the website that they had and like the fake like premiere shit that they did like the missing posters they had like all these elements that like tapped into the fourth wall breaking that the film itself was doing as part of the marketing and like really like blurred the lines between artifice and like reality mm-hmm. beyond what the movie itself was already doing, which is just like, I don't know. That's, that was not, that's like so common now. Like we see that on fucking Twitter every single sure. day, but, but it was also was lightning not... in a bottle. It was also a time period when it was the only moment, it was the in only moment. That, that that could actually happen, but it hadn't, it hadn't been done before either. So like, I think, and for that movie, it really made sense. Like it, it works. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's an incredibly important movie. It's one that was like a huge success. One of the biggest movies of the late nineties, but also just, uh, one that I, I don't think I would have appreciated the way that I did until, uh, I arrived at it and thought about it for the purposes of our episode. All right. Uh, you've got to pick one now. I have one. It is Todd Haynes's Safe. Uh-huh. 1995, starring Julianne Moore. Yep. Holy fucking shit. <laughs> I was blown away by this movie. It still, to this day, is like one of my favorite films I think ever made in the history of cinema. And I think one of the most like politically incisive even by today's standards especially by today's standards mm-hmm. and coming to it through Catherine Liu's book Virtue Hoarders the case against the professional managerial class that book allowed me to understand 
this film in a way that I think fully allowed me to experience what Todd Haynes was trying to express and, and successfully did express, mm-hmm. I think, in this film. Yeah. And yeah. what a treat it was to talk to Catherine about this movie in the context of her book, which I think is excellent and everyone should read it. Um, it's a rather short book and incredibly written. Um, but Julianne Moore's character, who is our protagonist, who is aggrieved by many a thing, um, except for, uh, poverty. (laughs) She's like very rich. Yeah. It's the only Um, reason she's able to have all the different treatments and everything that she does. Coming to understand her character as this like anticipation of this sort of like distressed white PMC woman who manages every aspect of her life, including her illnesses, which may or may not be Mm self-induced, just really made the film sing for me, particularly at the height of the pandemic, which is when we watched this. Yeah. Um, It just felt so salient um, and really, really incisive for a lot of the sort of like PMC like static that there was at the time um, and still is around like, the commodification of suffering. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the, the ways that certain classes of people get to fetishize their suffering, um, get to sort of perform the spectacle of suffering that others can consume. And there's a fine balance, right? There's like being a society of people that talks about, you know, grievances and pain openly. And then there's like doing so in order to make it another market which Mm -hmm. is more the thing that we all do um and this movie made me think about all of that and so much more yeah it's an incredible movie the political textures of it are multitudinous and broad and just yeah there's so much to talk about with that film uh and i just also remember that when we recorded with Catherine Liu, it was like 24 hours after my first COVID vaccine and I was like miserable. Oh my God. Yeah. Was it? Yes, it was. I was like recovering from my, my first shot. Uh, that you. Morning. Yeah, it was good though. It was like, it put me in the mindset in the <laughs> element of it. So I thought that that was really, really good. Yeah. All right. For my next one, I picked David Lynch's 1997 film Lost Highway. Who boy. Yes. Uh, an episode that we did with our dear friend Jonah Koslovsky. Sweet Jonah. Excellent guest. Like I was saying with my criteria, a film, actually one that I had not seen in David Lynch's uh, canon and filmography. I like David Lynch. I've always appreciated him. I've been, you know, in the, the Lynch hive since I was a, a teenager, a budding cinephile. I, I watched everything that I could, Eraserhead, Inland Empire, Mulholland Drive, Blue Velvet, what, you name it. Um but I always found him to be someone who was a more aesthetic driven uh, sort of filmmaker, one who dabbled in things that were surreal and and discomforting and sort of there to kind of be provocative at a surface level. Intriguing, but rather thin. And I don't know, I just, I, I this time around when we were watching this film and, and talking about David Lynch, I finally kind of understood how distinctly radical his approach to filmmaking was and the way that that is actually a sort of uh political texture 
to the way that he perceives art and the craft of filmmaking. And Jonah, I think, like, really took us there. Absolutely. I remember editing that show. I think to date that is still the longest episode of our show. <laughs> I mean, it's it's up there. It's it's it, yeah. it breaches two hours. And I remember, and our listeners will correct me on this almost immediately because they listened to it and, and I just edited it. But I remember being in the editing process and realizing that there was no clean way to get rid of the things. Like I could not kill my darlings in that edit. Like I could have made it shorter and I chose not to because there was just too much meat on the bone. Yeah. And I, I just remember it being like, this is a, a really fun, easy, effortless two hours that we had. It's my favorite David Lynch movie yeah. because we talked about it with Jonah. I, th- I think it might be up there for me too. Like I, the other ones are, you know, maybe more significant or, uh, you know, b- better made films, what have you. But this is the one to me that feels the most special. Yeah, I agree. All right, Carly, next one. My next pick is a one ravenous. Of course. Manifest destiny. Westward expansion. It'll come April. We'll all start again. We won't kill indiscriminately. Of course, with no wish to recruit everyone, we've enough mouths to feed as it is. (laughs) We just need a home. And this country is seeking to be whole. Stretching out his arms and consuming all it can. Of course. Directed by a lady. But directed by a lady. Antonia Bird. <laughs> Antonia Bird. Oh. Uh, there's so much sadness attached to this film because of her early death. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie uh, was released in 1999. Um, it stars Robert Carlyle and Guy Pierce and like a whole bunch of other people who are incredible in it. Matt Monagle brought us this movie. Yes. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not your average film gal on Twitter. I don't love horror. It's That's, not my favorite. It is not your favorite. Um, And I'm not a huge fan of gore. And this movie is about cannibals. Um, And like, it doesn't pull punches on that front. <laughs> um. And holy shit, did I leave this film being like, not only is this like my favorite horror movie I've ever seen, but it's like maybe one of my favorite movies of any genre. And it needed to be gory. It needed to be like scary and all of the things that it was. But one, Robert Carlyle is fucking incredible brilliant in that movie brilliant in that fucking movie like knocked the wind out of my chest so incredible yeah the music is by a very special boy whom i love (laughs) named damon albarn yes Um, and michael nyman and michael nyman and the music is the thing that i think is so important about this film this is the first film i distinctly remember being able to articulate in the moment and after the fact that it had like kicked me into like a psychic experience with the movie Mm -hmm. that I was like no longer operating on a purely sensorial 
plane with this film, but that I was like in a psychic headspace in a psychic landscape that it wanted me to be in. Yeah. And the music is hugely material to that effort. I will think about that haunting like pipe organ like round. Oh my God. During the flashback sequence all the time. It's so uncanny. It's like so unhinged. It almost also feels like anachronistic. Yes. Which is the thing that's like. It completely does. Terrifying about it. Because it takes place in like Manifest Destiny era like America. Yeah. Right. And it's very clearly like uh, the sort of. It, it, it was a synth, right? It sounds kind of like an analog instrument, but it's just... It's synthy. ...alien enough for it to feel unnerving. And it's this, like, beautiful, horrible meditation on the violence and cannibalism of the American colonial project. And holy shit, is it ever. Like, yeah. I mean, it's just... It is not only a thrilling film in and of its own right but it also is so politically incisive and it's not like trying to trick you into thinking that it's not like it's everything that it wants to be and so much more um and it's ultimately like a vampire movie more than like it's a cannibal movie yes but it's like it's a fucking vampire it's a vampire movie like it's a it's a monster movie um and there are elements of it that feel kind of like i don't want to say like hammer horror but like kind of a little bit a little bit. Especially towards the end when there's like a standoff and like yeah. you know, the music swells like And Carlisle's like a sexy like pale vampire oh, and God, he's so hot. <laughs> um yeah, this this movie just like blew me away. And I if you had told me going into the show that like one of my favorite films ever would be a horror movie about fucking cannibals in like colonial America, I'd be like, no way. Shut up. Yeah. I I remember. And I still think about, you know, your words on this often that it's not just one of your favorite horror movies. It's like one of your favorite movies outright. And for that to be the case is uh high praise for a movie of its kind. It opens with a guy eating a fucking bloody steak <laughs> the bloodiest like pork chop you've ever seen in your it's life sick it's and i'm really... still like oh i fucking love this movie <laughs> like it's incredible it's so good great pick uh moving on with my list let's see this is my third pick i think yes um all right i'm gonna i'm gonna call an audible here and pull one i guess gotta go with my heart oh shit homie this one is uh the bridges of madison county oh yeah that makes sense it, for you. It would be, uh, I think, dishonest of me to leave off the only Clint Eastwood yeah. movie we've done on the show <laughs> really today. Really would. <laughs> and, uh, Jake would be so sad. Yes, Jake, our, our, our dear sweet boys, Ian Ryan and Jake Sir, whenever it podcast you for me. No, we've done right by you. We've talked about a Clint Eastwood movie on the show. Indeed. Uh, and on this show, in our top picks. Uh, that episode was done with dear friend of the pod, Comrade Yui. Uh, Carly, you were not there for that one. It's the only one that I picked in which uh, I went solo. Actually, never mind. I take that back. It may not be the only one I picked in which I went solo, <laughs> but it is not because you were absent. It's simply because uh, Clint Eastwood is uh, incredibly important to me as a filmmaker, and it was an awesome film to come to. I I had never seen Bridges before. I had seen a handful of other Clint movies, and it's one of the the ones that... 
I think kind of opened up the floodgates for me and helped me to realize just literally, literally, (laughs) uh, I mean, let's be real here. Only two directors that we've covered on this program before have ever inspired me to immediately hunt down and watch like literally everything they've ever done. Lately, it's Brian De Palma. And before that, it was Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it it just, I think, revealed a a sensitivity and a texture of Clint as a filmmaker and an artist that I had not anticipated or believed possible from him. And it was a thing that I think sold me on the fact that, oh, this guy doesn't just have like a handful of good movies. Like there's actually something uh, rich and worthwhile and basically everything he's ever touched behind the camera. Uh, so I did. I watched all 40 directorial efforts from Clint Eastwood uh, that fall and winter after talking about this one. And yeah, it's just it's a beautiful movie. I think about that ending often where he's in the rain and Meryl drives off with her husband and breaks my heart. It, it, it will choke you up instantly thinking about it. The man with no name is a hopeless romantic. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, yes, he is. He is. He is ultimately a hopeless romantic. He's a, a brilliant filmmaker. I love Bridges of Madison County. I think easily top five Clint Eastwood all time. Yeah, I'd give you that. My next pick is a movie by Abbas Kiarostami. Uh-huh. Uh, a movie called Close Up <laughs> from 1990. I, I knew you were going to pick this one. How? Because it's an incredible movie. Uh, and uh, just... I. I what incredible conversation too. We'll we'll talk about, but well, firstly, I should say one of my most favorite humans in the entire world brought me this movie. Yes. Her name is Roxana Haddadi. Um, I love her more than I can even put words to, and she is a person who we would never have met if we didn't do this show. And no. now I like can't imagine not knowing her. So thankful that we initially reached out to her. She was one of the earliest guests we had on the she show was. too. She came on for Pop Up the Volume. She's been back since we did Close Up uh, for From Dust Dawn. And every single conversation we've had with her, including our very first one, was like oh, like this is like the coolest, smartest person I've ever met in my whole life. I know we said that this is about the movies first and foremost um, but I would be, I think, remiss if I just didn't mention um, that every single person like any friend we've ever brought on the show, any show that we've ever been on with friends, when Roxana Haddadi's name comes up, everyone just has to pause for a moment for a yes. ceremonial like, <laughs> she's the most amazing Oh, person. she's the best. And we're like, yes, we know. Yes, oh. we know. We love Roxana. She's an incredible friend of the show and um, was an awesome, awesome guest for this, this movie. But she's Iranian. And this is a movie made by an Iranian filmmaker. Um, One of the one of the premier Iranian filmmakers, a, a director whose work I was not familiar with until we, we saw this film. Um, and holy fucking shit. I don't even know what to say about this movie. Like it's hard to encapsulate it in like it, a few I'm minutes. I'm like, I can't <laughs> use words to talk about it. I need like images. Um, but suffice it to say what Kiara Stami is doing with, the sort of like presentation and withdrawal of artifice in this film and like his sort of commentary on like the director's role in filmmaking and their relationship to their subject matter and the people that they work with. Like there's just so much texture to this film and there's such a, a, 
fervent conversation that Abbas is having with the medium of filmmaking, with the art of filmmaking, and doing so in Iran during a time when, like, really fucking terrible things were happening in the country. Yeah. Um, and the one thing I will say is I wrote a sentence about this movie just like when I was tweeting one day about it mm-hmm. and I want to read it because it's, it's real and true. Um, I said with a lone rolling paint can Kira Stami made me ponder how often I'm unsatisfied and uninterested in what the present has to offer me, how often I look ahead expectantly or even in fear in movies and in life. Roxana says, he denies us what we think we want and we are richer for it. And all I'll say about that is that we had this conversation about the way that Kiarostami withholds things from you and sort of like brings to the surface what your expectations are, makes you sort of confront them, and then forces you to engage with his film despite those expectations. Yeah. And it's just like such a beautiful exercise for a filmmaker. Um, and I can't ever remember feeling that way after watching a movie or like during watching a movie and being like, oh my God, like I'm never happy in the present moment. And he's like making me think about that. Like yeah. it's a beautiful, beautiful film. And what he is able to do, I think with like perspective, not just when talking about the art of filmmaking, but like perspective on life. I don't know, man. That's like art shit. Uh, it's an incredible film and a wonderful, wonderful pick. Bravo. Technically brava. Brava. All right. Next one from me. We're getting near the end here. This is my number four. Uh, I went ahead and picked David Fincher's 1997 film, The Game. Oh, boy. Uh, oh. Yes. Good pick. Which we did with uh, one Bilga Abiri, one of the finest critics working today. Bilga, I love you. Uh, one of our favorite people, incredible guests, just like uh, profoundly smart, kind, uh, just generous person uh, and, and just loves movies. So the game is one that I think gets a bad rap. I think it's often put near the bottom of people's lists not if you're me and bilga not if you're me either now i honestly think that this movie's reputation preceded it with me and i remember not loving it when i first watched it and i I think part of it was just the ending felt a little you know the ending is, is the ending uh i would probably say now after that conversation after that discussion that I would put this movie easily near the top of my list of favorite David Fincher movies. Uh, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I think it's tense and brilliant and brilliantly acted. And I also think it's one of his most human and personal movies that is about filmmaking. And you know, I love a good meta commentary on the art, like a close up. It's such an interesting film to think about in terms of like what it anticipates too about like our relationship with technology and our relationship with wealth and like the scriptures of capital. It's just like so much smarter than I think people realize. And it's a fucking romp. It's such a romp. It's so fucking fun and terrorizing. It's a blast. Like it's, it's so much funnier than all. I mean, Fincher movies are funny. I think that it's, it's uh, a mischaracterization to say that his movies are never funny. Like, 
Gone Girl is like one of the funniest thrillers I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's hilarious yeah. and insanely watchable. Uh, but it's one that's deceptively funny. One that does not, at face value, at surface, get you to believe that what it's doing is funny. But when you understand a little bit about Fincher and I think his his framing and perspective on things, you realize, oh, he's he's having a really good time with this. Um, and it's a, a great San Francisco movie. We get to see our beloved city great San Francisco uh, shot well. And yeah, I, I just had a blast with it. Great episode. Great film. I want to watch it again right now. Are you going to spend the rest of the evening crying at that clown's mouth? I, I, I don't. It's frustrating for me if you don't, you don't, you don't pay attention. This is your game, Nicholas, Nicholas, and welcome to it. I'm here to let you in on a few ground rules. You receive the very first key, and others will follow. You'll never know where you'll find them, or how you'll need to use them. So keep your eyes open. How do you... you can see me? Now let's save the questions till afterwards. My next pick is another 1990 film by a director who I'm like... Yeah, he makes some good stuff. <laughs> but I wasn't like, this man is like revelatory. Um, and that director is Richard Linklater. Uh-huh. I love his trilogy. Like, Who doesn't? Who doesn't I'm, love them before? Everyone does, right? Yeah. But I was not like, oh my God, Richard Linklater is a genius. Yeah. And after watching this... That, that thought escaped you after seeing School of Rock? Oh, I do love that movie. <laughs> Me too. It's no, a, like I actually fucking love that. It's movie. a blast. It's a, it's a wonderful movie. Jack Black's great in it. It's super fun. Like it kind of makes me cry. Um. Anyways, so the movie I'm talking about is Slacker. Um. It was brought to us by our dear friend, uh, Robbie Raymond of uh, a wonderful, incredible, and very important podcast uh, that he does with our other friend, Della Duncan, called Upstream. Mm -hmm. They're amazing. You should listen to them. No one's paying me to say that. Except for me. You might. I am paying you, and it's going right back in the Hit Factory coffers. Okay, good. We're laundering money uh, <laughs> through this right now to promote Upstream. Listen to Upstream, though. They're no, fantastic. No, for reals. I learn 8,000 new things every time I listen to an episode of theirs. Um, so the slacker generation is something that we all sort of talk about with a certain level of derision now, I think. Um, but like it's it's an important like time and like populace of people that existed um and represented kind of like another wave of this counterculture that sprung up in the sixties and um it took on a very different form in the nineties. And this is really the first film that like plays in this landscape of slackerdom and like it's called slacker and it is like maybe the seminal slacker film. I think films like reality bites or like singles or fucking whatever, like all of those movies are, you know, talking about this generation of people, these young Gen Xers who were incredibly disillusioned with like the promise of like living after the end of history and like what America had to offer them. Um, but also had a certain level of privilege, a class position that allowed them to slack. Yeah. And I don't think any of the films sort of made in that oeuvre engage with that. Yeah. Except for slacker. And 
Richard Linklater is like unafraid of showing us the material position certain people are in that allows them to quite literally in the film meander and the film formally takes on this kind of stride Mm -hmm. of moving from one vignette to the next and that's the other thing I really appreciate about this movie is that like he is narratively talking to us about this generation and like commenting on them exploring them acknowledging like that these are sort of his peers but he's also formally like demonstrating to us that there is an aimlessness to this population and that it is one that is largely manufactured the way that he is manufacturing that aimlessness Mm -hmm. and I just was blown away by it like I was not expecting to love the movie as much as I did and to find it as politically resonant as I did. Oh yeah, I know what I gotta show you guys, man. This, this will blow your gourd. I have this friend, all right? She's a gynecologist in Hollywood and she scored this for me from the lab where she works. It's a Madonna pap smear. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Teresa Taylor, the drummer of um, Butthole Surfers. the band Butthole Surfers, a group I know you love and listen to often, mm-hmm. uh, she is in this movie. Um, she, in fact, is on the cover. The she is she, in fact, is on the movie poster. Yeah, um, and is very recognizable for it um, because of the scene that she's in and sort of the look that she has is just incredibly (laughs) striking. It's one of the most like famous moments in the the movie. It's she is, um, peddling a pap smear that she is saying is Madonna's. Right. It's brilliant writing. It's brilliant acting. It's a, it's one of uh, my favorite scenes in the movie and everyone loves it. Um, she recently passed away last month, actually in June, Um, At the age of 60, I think she had some sort of a lung disease Mm. in the announcement of her death. um, Her uh, friends and family made it clear that she was clean and sober at the time because she did struggle with addiction at one point in her life. Mm. Um, And I was just so sad to hear that news because she's such a like important part of that film. And I can't like think of that movie and not think of her. She's the first image that comes to mind whenever, and and I mean like it, it is on the poster. Yes, but it's such a, yeah. she somehow manages to encapsulate like the entirety of that generation yes. in like just her visage. Absolutely. All right. Home stretch here. My last pick uh, is a film, another 1999 film. Uh, this is the limey. Steven Soderbergh's film. I did this episode with Matt Belanke. I think this is another one that came up recently that, uh, Carly, you were not on the episode for, mm-hmm. but uh, just completely transfixed by this film. It was a blind spot for me in Steven Soderbergh's uh, filmography. I've seen a lot of his movies. I've always considered him to be quite brilliant, extremely capable behind the camera. And this is just its own beast. The editing, the formal structure, the narrative of it uh, is done in such a way as to abstract every moment and compress, but also expand time simultaneously. 
things happen out of, of chronological order in a way that just makes it all come together into this cohesive whole that is less about the actual mechanics and plot of the movie. It's not about this sort of like petty revenge thriller the way I thought it was going to be. It's about a man and his quest for his own sort of spiritual redemption. It does all of this while also being a movie that is self-referential and about a sort of dying breed of new Hollywood actor and type of film. It just has sort of a uh, elegiac quality to it that is really beautiful and just utterly gripping. I, I absolutely love this movie. Uh, one of the best films of the decade that I think we've covered on the show so far and one that I will recommend to literally anybody anytime they ask me. It's interesting that our through line, I think, for a lot of our picks is like a film that challenges sort of formal assumptions of... of cinematic undertakings yeah i don't know it, it's it's like part of the project of the show i guess is finding those types of movies yeah it's almost like it's like good for you to like <laughs> be in the throes of something that is different and uncomfortable potentially yeah um well along those same lines my next pick uh and i have two more sorry uh-oh uh-oh curveball i'm an overachiever <laughs> You said you love homework. I fucking love it. You got two of them. Go for it. Um, Irma Vap by Olivier Assayas, uh, released in 1996. Yes. Holy fucking shit, this film. I mean, this is a resume. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I mean, you can speak to the sort of like conversation that this movie is having with like the French New Wave yeah. and like what Assayas is doing with his cast uh with the sort of like commentary about movies i'll let you speak to that because you know that shit and i don't um but like you know you come to this movie with perhaps the assumption that movies about movies are pretentious and this film is like no fuck you uh you're watching you are watching the wrong movies <laughs> about movies um because it it just like shuts all of that criticism down immediately and reminds you instead of the ability and and the necessity of films to challenge us yes. and to challenge the status quo i think it's so brave and i think it's like um it's incredibly necessary when you are like holding people's attention for like several hours at a time to be a person who is not afraid to look at your own work and be critical of it. Particularly when you are like engaging in a conversation about like what movies are and like what actors are and like what spectacle is and like what's the audience and what role do they play? Like you have to be critical of your own role in that, in that algorithm. Absolutely. And he is, and he is in this, in the form of this like beautiful, lyrical, strange, disturbing film, um, that has Maggie Chung in it. So like, okay. Already sold. And she's like in latex. Yeah. She's super hot in this movie. She's like, incredibly there's, there's hot. No way. Other way to put it. And like, the conversation that this movie is having with like Western cinema yeah. and like, you know, Chinese action cinema and like French new wave and like 
just all of these things and it's just beautiful and it ended up also addressing or at least teeing up so many things that are relevant in film conversations today like the commodification of images and messages representation Mm -hmm. good representation versus bad representation who decides which is which (laughs) um who films are for what makes a movie good like all of these things are contained in the curiosities of Assayas and this film. And like, it's from 1996 and I feel like it could be a film and is a film that is more relevant today than it probably was then. And it's timeless and it's gorgeous again, rebooted on HBO just last year, a, a, a testament to just how, important that idea still is and how much there still is there to mine the most romantic thing i can say about this film is that it reignited my belief in the potential for art to be radical i I think i summed it up when i was talking about this movie like on letterboxd or something as olivier say is asking for the first time in decades the question what if a french film could be interesting (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, that That is his whole sort of uh, guiding thesis there. Um, it's also the, the film that made uh, a sort of seminal thesis statement emerge <laughs> for Mr. I, Streisnig. I was hoping you were going to bring this up. <laughs> yes. Uh, one that, uh, that Michael Bay is the American Olivier Assayas. And man, he's fucking right. He's, I mean, he, he, it <laughs> makes perfect sense within the context of the conversation. Within the context of the conversation, it does. And since then, the half dozen times that we have talked about it or he has talked about it and posted about it, it inevitably just like infuriates somebody where they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? We know what we're talking about. <laughs> That's how you know he's right. Yes, well, go, go and listen to the episode. It makes perfect sense. Michael Bay, the American Olivier Assayas. Okay, really quickly. Yeah. My last my last guy. Let's do it. I gotta say it. You have to. Kronos. Okay. I, I was gonna say, I was like, it's either Crash or Kronos. Well, I've seen Crash before. Oh, but you before. had seen Crash, right. So that wouldn't be part of the criteria. Oh, my sweet holy god this movie (laughs) another horror film another horror film where i was like oh and it's body horror too so we've got that again yep and here i was just like unable to tear my eyes away from the screen which is the opposite of what i do in movies like the saw or whatever like i just can't do it yeah um i just fell head over heels in love with Guillermo del Toro watching this film um, because it is one of the most like deeply human things I've ever watched in my whole fucking life. And it's a horror movie. So like, you know, I'm getting proved wrong about a lot of things. (laughs) Um, But like, here's why it's like fucking pure snow white powder for me. There's a quote in an article that I found when I was like reading about this film because I was obsessed with it and I couldn't stop thinking about it after we watched it where Guillermo basically like name checks NAFTA as like the thing, like the political and economic vampirism that like animated all of the anxieties that take place in this film, which takes place in Mexico in 1993. Post NAFTA. Post NAFTA. And I was like, this is my fucking shit. Yes. This is my shit. <laughs> and, and 
he has this other quote in an interview when he's talking about Terrence Fisher and he says, you know, Terrence Fisher made all these like beautiful monsters that are just surrounded by deeply strange people. Yeah. And you see that perspective in this film that like he is showing us the sort of like humanity in these outcasts. Um, and God, it's just gorgeous. It's, it's like this film that is about the power of, of love and humanity in the face of capitalist violence. And when you understand that, you understand it to be a comic flick. <laughs> yeah. I, Guillermo del Toro has lost a little bit of his political edge he as he's aged for sure. And this is like one of his for, first movies. I mean, it is like his debut feature film. Uh, and he has like a, a very tried and true formula that he's adopted since, which is like kind of like a magic realism type thing that's like imbued with horror. He uses in the devil's backbone, I think first, like at, at the uh, beginning of the, the 2000s. He uses it, I think, to best effect in Pan's Labyrinth, which I still think is like the high watermark of completely filmography. This, this and Pan's are like. Yeah. And then he loses it a little bit when he gets to The Shape of Water, which is the same basic formula, but a little bit less yeah. inspired. Look, I would we're say. not talking about The Shape of Water. We're not going to talk about it on this movie episode uh, or ever because it's not a 1990s movie. No. But Kronos is just magical i i had seen it before a long time ago when we revisited it it just immediately uh solidified it as like a, a top tier horror film of the 90s one of the best mexican films of the decade and easily one of guillermo del toro's finest i had a clint eastwood moment with this movie where i was like okay i need to watch like five guillermo del toro movies I'm now pr i'm pretty sure that's the thing that finally convinced you to sit down and watch uh the remainder of the hellboy movies with it, me it 100 percent was <laughs> because you resisted for a while i did and they're not bad no they're pretty good they're not they're pretty good pretty good the only other thing the only other thing i'll say about this film aside from the fact that federico lupi is fucking breathtaking in this movie snaps for federico lupi is the thing that i came to realize about Guillermo del Toro's work. That Ron Perlman is a genius. No, that's all you, <laughs> dog. <laughs> You're still not totally sold on him, I know. I'm not. I mean, like, I He's am, good in the movie. He is. He is. I just... I whatever. Know. He's, got a, he's got a face. It's not even that. It's like, I think I've just got weird stuff going on there. Um, but, no, I came to understand <laughs> something fundamental about Guillermo del Toro's project through this film and it was this film that that really like made it crystal clear to me and changed my relationship with the rest of his movies even ones I didn't like as much which is that he has this ability to put me like back in this headspace of kind of like a what what I can only describe tritely as a childlike wonder it's like literally tapping into your inner child and I felt it watching this film and I realized how just like precious a thing that is and it's a gift he's giving us yes he gave me that for two <laughs> hours he yes. was like this feeling you miss feeling that you haven't felt ever in years and that you never get to feel ever because you're just like writing emails all day here it is here it is for you yeah and it's it's just something that is like incredibly inspired it's lyrical it's funny like it, it it's just a very as you said just a, a deeply human 
picture. It's a good one to close on, too. Yeah, it is. Excellent pick. Thanks. Top six. Top 11 from the Hit Factory folks here. Top 11. Top 11. I think it's a pretty good rundown, a pretty good list of, of movies that we just put together. Yes. Um, and, if, you know, the entire reason for us doing this is because I was promised by our friends and listeners of the show that this would not be uh, masturbatory and that they would, in fact, like to listen to it. I'm fucking so, dubious, man. We'll find out. Uh, but hopefully they do listen to this. Hopefully they have enjoyed it. Um, and uh, it's just an opportunity, I think, you know, things feel treacherous tenuous uncertain right now in a lot of spaces uh we're recording this right now on like a weekend where it feels like a silly trivial thing but like (laughs) twitter went down for all of us for like a little bit and for a brief period we all had to sort of like face the idea of being with our own thoughts and also just kind of abandoning a community of people that we fostered for three years now uh and it sucked like it sucked more than i care to admit Mm -hmm. thinking about and like looking down like the possibility of just like losing those folks and so this is here for us to like reminisce and maybe you know pat ourselves on the back and congratulate ourselves for for three trips around the sun doing the show um and doing it consistently which not a lot of people can say about their programs uh we we put out content constantly we've yeah we've well kept schedule you've you've kept the train going we have we have both done it it's been easier certain times than others for sure um but we've always been here and we've done it uh, with the help of uh, countless friends that have, have come on the show that have listened to the show that have offered their support and feedback on it. I, I don't even know if I can name all of them. I, I certainly can't off the top of my head, but we're just deeply indebted to every single person who has been a part of this show, whether as a guest or a friend or a listener or just a follower. It's, it's been one of the most meaningful things that I've done in the last handful of years. Um, so I'm just, I'm really thankful to get the chance to do it and really thankful to get to do it with my best friend and my partner. Yeah. I I don't know what else to say besides just that. I, I feel a profound sense of gratitude for it and that it's fun. Sometimes it's hard other times, but it's always worthwhile and I'm always incredibly thankful for it. So we started this podcast in 2020 when we were living in a single room <laughs> an apartment that was a loft where we had no doors um and like we couldn't go anywhere and uh like the sky was orange for like three days at a time and literally the sky was orange that summer yeah like everyone was dying and they still are and like a bunch of like white people started podcasts in 2020 like i know that <laughs> yeah right we're talking about pmc um it's it's pretty cliche that we started a podcast in the middle of it, it totally is we didn't ever do sourdough <laughs> i guess no, we can, we we can wear didn't. that like a badge of honor um but you know there's a reason right like people were like looking for a way to connect um and to like engage with something that didn't feel as terrifying as everything else did um and so we did that you know with the help of of Tom Cruise and what ended up happening like changed my life which like sounds so dumb 
Um, but like really did. Like I've met people that like helped me through the like worst thing I've ever been through in my entire life, which is losing my dad. And um, like I didn't know that they would exist in my life when I knew, you know, 10 years ago that my dad was going to die before everyone else's. Like, I wasn't like, I'm going to meet people like, you know, on fucking Twitter that like saved my life. <laughs> but I did. Um, and, you know, it's because of like movies or whatever. But I also think that it's because of something more profound than that which is that like people need community and I think that so much about postmodern existence is training us to believe that that is not true and to like beat the desire for connection and community out of us um mechanically technologically temporally carcerally you name it and like my politics evolved over the course of us doing this show and I don't think that like the show did that but it was certainly in conversation with that evolution mm-hmm. and my politics are ones that believe that something communal is better than the thing that we're doing ultimately and like Every time we have a conversation with someone, a stranger, a perfect stranger about a film. Who takes time out of their day. Who takes time out of their day to sit down with a bunch of kooks just being like, yeah, let's talk about this thing. And like, we're not doing it for anything. Like, I'm not doing it to be like, okay, like, I'm making you money, boss, or whatever. Like, the Patreon is incidental at this point in the sense that like, it's not funding our lifestyle, right? Like, that's not why we're doing this. Um, And like, how often do we actually get to do that and do it like in a a way that allows us to connect with people outside of our, you know, normal sphere of, of interactions from fucking London to New York to like Philadelphia, whatever, like Austin, like Australia. Australia oh sweet Owen and Paige um and like I'm a huge sap so this is fucking sappy but like that is a thing that like no matter what happens with Twitter no matter what happens with this podcast like I will be sad and mourn the death of those things if that death comes but I've made relationships that I'm gonna have in my life for the rest of my life in some capacity and like that it's because of movies. <laughs> like, yeah. It's because of movies. It feels nuts to say. But and it's, it's like... why people went to the movies, man. Like it's why art exists ultimately yeah. to like be a conversation starter and to bring people together in some form, in some fashion and to like force us to engage with the world around us and the people in it. A friend of the show on the internet one time told me told us that of all the people doing this thing that they follow on the internet we're one of the few one of the handful that is not just producing content but doing something that fosters community oh 
and brings people in collectively to like cherish and appreciate something. And I honestly can't think of a higher compliment than that for our show. It's, it's more than I could have ever imagined anyone would say about something that we, you know, we're putting out from that. Just screaming into a microphone loft. about Tom Cruise running. It's, it, it, <laughs> you know, it's never anything we, we were thinking about when we started this. Like it, it honestly was just like one of the f- only things in my fucking life that felt like I was being productive. It still feels that way. Like I'm employed now, like, you know, I getting a paycheck and it still feels like one of the few things in my life that I can do that is for me and is like productive and is meaningful and feels fucking good. And uh, yeah, I just, I I don't know what else to say about it besides just like uh, we'd be doing this if it were just like five of you listening and it's not anymore. It's like, it's more than that, which is insane to me. Sometimes it's wild. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just profoundly grateful for it again uh, to each and every one of you, whoever hits play on your chosen place to stream podcasts. And I don't know how much sappier we can get today. Um, besides just ending with that, saying thank you to you all. Thanks for being here for the last three years with us. Um, and know that like, I'm not exaggerating when I say I, I legitimately love you. <laughs> like, we love you. Like actual you. real love. And if you know me, you know that's true. I, you know it's true. <laughs> it there's nothing but love. Like I have dreams about you guys. Like, I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> just your, your ats on <laughs> online. We just think about you. Like uh, wondering what you're doing on any given day, how your mom is. And we want to know. So tell us uh, for the, the brief window of time where we still have the ability to like foster that community in a digital space alongside just this program where we talk at you. Um, that is purely a sender receiver model of communication. Um, We look forward to seeing you there and we will catch you the next time. Take care, everyone.